Good morning, church family. We're so glad, again, that you are with us. We are continuing in the book of Acts, and uh, today we'll be looking at Acts chapter 4, verse 32, through uh, chapter 5, verse 11. And uh, Brandon kind of stole my thunder a little bit there. I had this whole uh, thing talking about the uh, uh, the 28th and, and how it's two weeks from today. And that was meant to give you time to find Acts chapter 4, verse 32. So you have to speed that up a little bit because you already said a lot of that. And uh, so uh, we are so glad that you're with us this morning. I will just say that uh, over the last several weeks, it has been a, a joy uh, to be able to uh, come together in some form or fashion, but we do all just eagerly anticipate the opportunity to come and to worship together uh, in person. But uh, I would just say that it is our desire to do that in a safe and meaningful way. Uh, we want to provide an opportunity for us to gather that would be both safe and meaningful, that you would feel like that you can come into this place, that you are being taken care of, that necessary precautions are being made, uh, and that it is going to be meaningful when you come into this place. And uh, like Brandon said, we'll be sending out some information this week uh, for this very special time as we uh, gather again on the 28th here in person. Now, with all that said, hopefully I've drugged that out long enough to where you found Acts chapter 4. If not, I'm going to give you another opportunity because we're going to pray again, and then uh, we'll jump right into our text. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the opportunity to open your word. Lord, I ask that you would uh, speak through me. Uh, Lord, that I would, uh, that I would just, um, God, be able to properly communicate your heart through this text. And that, God, you would speak to us even through a, a, a screen. That, God, we would, God, feel your presence. Lord, we would know that we have met with the living God when we leave this time together. God, we, we thank you for this text, Lord, even though it is difficult to read and difficult to think about, but God, we know that you've put it here for a reason that you might teach us and that we might experience you through it. So God, we just ask that you would guide us now. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 4. Beginning in verse 32, the Bible says this. Now the full member of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that, he, that, that, any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. For there was not one needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land and or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias and his wife, with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? 
Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose up and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the lamb for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came, they came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Okay. That's an interesting text. <laughs> and it is one that is uh, sometimes hard for us to hear. It's difficult for us to read a text like that and to think of it as real life. I think sometimes, if we're honest, the book of Acts can, can feel like a little bit of an unbelievable story. Many of the aspects of, uh, of Acts seem to be either too foreign or too extreme to be true, yet they are. It's easy for us to dismiss the New Testament time as an uncommon time. And, and yes, in some ways it, it, it was very uncommon. But I'll, I'll just say this, and, and I love, what this is what Brandon uh, said uh, at the very beginning of, of this time, this, this pandemic time, this, these last few months. He said that these are unprecedented times and that they are bringing unprecedented opportunities. And can I just say that in the last few months, not just Redemption Hill Church, but the church has been challenged in many of the things that we had just fallen into as normal. We've seen many of the normal things just go away, but new opportunities have risen in their place. And I want to thank each and every one of you that, that are hearing this for finding new ways to both love God and to love neighbor. And I know that we here at the church have done our very best to provide content and opportunities for you to grow in your walk with God. We've, uh, we've been doing daily devotions. We have been doing a weekly podcast. We've been providing this service. And uh, it is our prayer that you have uh, been blessed by the efforts that have been put in, not only by the, uh, the staff here, but also so many volunteers that put in countless hours in order to make all of this possible. So if I were to sum up this passage, I would, uh, if you want to bullet point a few things out, we see that, that one thing is that we see great unity of the believers and we see results from that unity. We see a voluntary sharing of the believers for the good of those in the family and we see this is the church as it should be. We see great power and great witness come from the apostles and from the community. And most importantly, we see the great grace of God being extended to the people there. Now, 
Aristotle, and we, we, we think about friendship, we think about community, we think about being together as one. Aristotle defined a friend as one soul dwelling in two bodies. And I like that definition because it really does go beyond just the platitude of, oh yeah, you're my buddy and you're my, you're my pal, you're my friend, you're my brother, you're my sister. One soul dwelling in two bodies that really feels like what Jesus was, was, was going for when he said that you should love God and you should love your neighbor as yourself. All the way back, he was quoting the Old Testament. He's saying that you should love God and that you should love your neighbor as yourself. That you should love and care for your neighbor in the same way that you care for yourself. The believers were experiencing the uh, the fulfillment of both the Old Testament and the cultural Greek desires that people would live in unity and that no one would be in need. We know that in the Old Testament there was a, a great emphasis on the giving of, uh, of, of, a, of a tithe so that there would be uh, resources available so that no one would be in need. That was the desire in the Old Testament for the Israelites. We see here in the Greek cultural desire, there was, this, there was this myth about if they were to just live their lives the way that they were supposed to, if they were to exemplify their Greekness, then no one would be poor in their midst. But we see here in the book of Acts that the New Testament church was actually seeing the fulfillment of that cultural and Old Testament biblical desire. But we have to ask ourselves the question, what does it mean that this community was of one heart and soul? It means that by the power of the Holy Spirit, they began to fulfill what God spoke through the prophet Micah. Micah 6, 8, you can go and read it. It says, what is required of you that you would do justice, that you would love kindness, and that you would walk humbly with God. That's why around here we like to talk about, we like to say that we love God, we live life together, and we serve our community. Loving God means that we seek to honor God in all circumstances. We seek His glory and not our own. We believe that He is everything and that He deserves everything from us, both big and small. Secondly, living life together means that we lift one another up. Listen very closely to me. We weep with one another. We celebrate with one another. We disciple one another in the ways of God so that he would be glorified in our midst. And can I just tell you something? We are in deep need of discipleship. We are in need of greater discipleship in the church. Over the past few weeks, many of us have been faced with questions and issues that might seem new to us, but that some of our brothers and sisters have been dealing with front and center for decades. We need more than ever in the place of race, in the place of politics, in the place of loyalty, in the place of trust in our officials, to lean into God and not simply our normative cultural beliefs and practices. you got to take a step back. 
you got to take a step back and ask the question, not should I embrace someone else's view on cultural practices, not should I embrace someone else's view on politics. I need to ask the question, what is God's view on these things? And he makes it pretty clear here. It says that the church was of one heart and soul. There was no division. There was a unity that brought revival. If you have the opportunity, there's a really old recording. I don't even know how I found it. I don't know where you can find it. I'll try to, I'll try to find it. Maybe I'll try to post something this week of uh, A.W. Tozer. It's actually a recording of him preaching a sermon that says, The unity that brings revival. And it is so good that God has brought us together. That God has saved us by his grace. That God has given us one heart. And that as we live out the unity that is already positionally true. Friend, if you are a believer in Christ, you are already unified with all of your other brothers and sisters in Christ. Throughout all the ages. Across all cultural boundaries, across all socioeconomic strata, across all racial barriers. You are positionally one with all believers. But he says that as we live out that unity, that revival breaks out. And can I just tell you, we need revival. We need revival in our hearts We need revival in our churches. We need revival in our cities, in our land, in our world. We need revival. Because just doing what we've always done will lead to just more and more and more division. Let us seek God in the place of prayer. Let us Ask one another hard questions and listen to hard answers. This is a part of the discipleship process. And what does that discipleship process lead to? Well, here at Redemption Hill Church, it leads to serving our community and seeking the welfare of our city, all parts of our city. We desire for our city to thrive and prosper just as the New Testament church sought for their city to thrive and prosper. A city, might I add, that didn't necessarily agree with what they were about, but they still sought the prosperity of their city. They still sought to see their city do well, and we would do well to do the same. And here in the text, we get an example Joseph called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. We, we get this example, but, but I, I, I want to I talk about November of 2007. I stepped off of a plane that for this southern boy felt like another country. I had traveled all the way to Boston, Massachusetts to take part in a regional Christian conference for college students. And can I just tell you, I had never been to Boston And if you're from Boston, if you've ever been to Boston, or if you've ever been to the Northeast, or you've ever been outside of the South, you kind of know that they they do things a little bit different. It It was a little bit of a culture shock for me. 
and we, it was a small gathering of, of, of college students, only, only a few hundred. Now we're used to seeing conferences that'll go into the thousands and thousands and thousands, but this was a small gathering of college students up there in the Northeast, not necessarily a hotbed for Christianity, but for three days we worshiped, we heard from God's word, we fellowshiped together. And I'll tell you, during that time, there was a big ask. They were asking for something during those three days. They were asking for a donation that seemed pretty sacrificial to my mind and for a bunch of college students. They wanted $3,000 to build a permanent well in a village in Africa. And the organizers of the conference had, had these, lo- these long tubes that were right there in the lobby. And, as, and, and they were filled up with clear water. And as, as the money came in, they would, they, would, they would color that water more and more and more blue. And there was a, a different tube for each one of the cities that would, uh, th- this conference would be held over the next few months, with Boston being the first one. This was a totally voluntary offering, they said. They, they were honest in saying, hey, listen, we'll be happy if you college students, just the few hundred college students, can scrape together the cash to get the $3,000 just to fill up your tube. They didn't have necessarily high hopes. But out of love for God and love for neighbor, even some distant neighbors, students began to gather what they could. In all, we raised over $20,000 in three days, filling all of the tubes and ensuring that six villages would have clean water to drink for decades. Can I just tell you something? Things like that happen all the time, but for me, it was such an encouragement to be a part of that offering. It felt a little bit like Barnabas in that moment, giving what I could, not because of what it would look like, but because of what it would do to further the gospel throughout the nations. So we see here in the overall sentiment of the New Testament church was one of giving sacrificially and giving voluntarily. It says here in the text that he laid his offering at the apostles' feet, not because they lorded their power over him, but because of Barnabas' commitment to the community that God had created among the believers. Now, it should be noted here that there is a difference between the Old Testament tithe and the New Testament offering. I won't go into a lot of detail, but there is some, there is some difference there in that the Old Testament tithe was a requirement from God to set the Israelites apart from the surrounding culture, the, the surrounding cultures. The New Testament offering was given in addition, oftentimes in addition to the traditional tithe, and was not given out of lawful obedience, but in response to the work of God in the life of the believer and the work of the church in the community. So when Barnabas laid down his offering, he did so, did so not out of strict adherence to the letter of the law, but out of love for God and desire to continue seeing the community lifted up. Remember that no one would be in need. 
that everyone would not regard their possessions as their own, but that they would see the need and that they would meet that need. And we don't get a we don't get a play-by-play here of how much was given. We don't know if it was 50 bucks or it was 50,000. We don't know if it was a field that was a quarter of an acre or it was 500 acres. It doesn't matter in this regard. What matters is that Barnabas did what God had asked him to do, that he gave willingly and sacrificially and voluntarily to continue the work of God in that place. This isn't the last that we would, will hear of Barnabas. You, if you read the book of Acts, you'll you find him later. He's mentioned uh, as one who will continue this ministry of encouragement by faith as a part of the community. But see, we see here in the text, it's, not so, it's, it's something that they would do. It's not something that they would have to do. I feel like oftentimes as Christians, we get so caught up in what I have to do and what I have to do. I have to do this. I have to say this. I have to go here. I have to have this kind of demeanor. We get so wrapped up in that cycle that before long we're doing things for no reason whatsoever, only just because that's what we do. If it were mandatory for believers to do this, Barnabas, uh, it would not have been pointed out as an example of what to do. It just would have been normal. Rather, we get this idea of what was done. I remember several years ago, I was a a young minister, and I was uh, serving in my first uh, full-time position at a church, and uh, it was a pretty transitional time for us. Uh, I, within the course of about a month, I married my wife, we went on a honeymoon, and we moved like two states away. Uh, and, and I think there's something in the Bible that says you're not supposed to do that. But we did it, and uh, it was um, compounded by the fact that we were packing all of our possessions to move, and we get a phone call that my dad had thrown a blood clot after a back surgery that he had had. He'd thrown a blood clot uh, across, his, across his pulmonary artery, and, uh, and he was going into emergency surgery. I remember the phone call. My, my, uh, I can't remember if it was my mom or my sister calls me and says, hey, you know, your dad's going into emergency surgery right now. And I, like, heard him turning on the little, like, clippers to shave his chest hair because they were about to cut him open right then. And here I am with a U-Haul truck full of stuff about to move to take on this new exciting opportunity to to minister and to to be a part of a church community in another place. And I'm faced with this issue that I didn't bring on myself. (laughs) I didn't choose it, but it happened. And so I was faced with a choice. I I, kind of had to make a, a, a split decision and what we ended up doing was we moved from Raleigh, North Carolina to uh, Central Virginia, and we just basically drove the U-Haul truck, got to where we were going to be staying, threw the keys of the U-Haul to the people inside, jumped in the car, and drove back down to the Atlanta area where my family lives in hopes that uh, my dad would, would be able to make it through 
uh, that travel time so that, so that I could be there. And, and can I just tell you something? That was, a, that was a pretty big thing because here I am, I'm you know, newly married, pretty new in ministry, and I'm, I'm trusting this, this church that I, that I know a little bit about, and I feel like I'm supposed to go there, God's calling me there, and I just kind of tossed them the keys. But can I just tell you, that church acted in a way that is kind of in, is congruent with what the New Testament church did. What, what, they do, what they did was they took all of our possessions out of that U-Haul, they neatly packed them in a warehouse and, put, and, and protected them, kept them for us, an entire house worth of stuff. They kept that stuff for us. We went down to Georgia. It was a couple of weeks. We came back. When we got back, they loaded up another U-Haul truck, drove it to where we were going to be renting a home, unloaded it, and Courtney and I, all we had to do was point in the direction that stuff was supposed to go. You might say, Matt, yeah, that's just like them being nice. No, I see it as them being the church. They cared for us. Shortly after that, some of these, uh, some of these ladies came around and said, hey, Matt, do you, uh, are you ready for your, for your pounding? And I was like, whoa, wait a second. You're not supposed to be beating up on me just yet. I just got here, right? They said, no, there's this, there's this practice where we, uh, when, when couples get married, that they, that they pound the couple. It's like, sounds a little weird. They would come and they would bring a pound of sugar, a pound of flour, a pound of butter, a pound of this, a pound of that. And it's basically this opportunity just to shower the new couple with gifts. Not like the showers that you see. This is like real practical stuff. Like I wanted a pound of trash bags. You know what I mean? And I wanted a, a, a pound of bathroom cleaner. But we see here that out of the love for God that these folks had, that they blessed us. And can I just tell you something? That should be normative. That shouldn't be an exceptional story. It stands out in my mind as exceptional, but actually it shouldn't. It should be normative. It should be something that we can just say, here's another thing and another thing and another time that this happened and another time that this happened. And I know that we as believers are, are desiring to be faithful and we're all learning in this. But can I just say that that really changed my mindset with regard to blessing others. I, to this day, if somebody calls me and wants me to help them move, I'm not, I, don't, I don't moan about it. I don't wail about it because I know what it's like to be in a dire situation and to have somebody care for me. And, and if you think about it too, you probably are the same. That You could probably think of a situation where somebody came alongside you and they didn't ask questions and they didn't bemoan it and they didn't try to hold it over your head. They just did what was required because they love you and they love Jesus. We need more of that. So we see here Barnabas, the example of what to do, but then we kind of switch over. And if Barnabas is an example to be followed and repeated... Ananias and Sapphira serves as a warning to the church then, as well as the church now. Here we're faced with a very striking incident. One that is, quite honestly, pretty difficult to think about. It seems pretty harsh. <clears throat> Out of sync with the nature of the gospel, almost. It seems like some would maybe object to this and say, oh, well, this is just like the God of the Old Testament. This vengeful, vengeful God that strikes this couple down 
just because they told a little lie. We'll we'll get more on that later. But we see here that there is an initial confrontation with Ananias. Read with me here. It says, um, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have lied not to man, but to God. There is an initial confrontation with Ananias, and then a subsequent uh, confrontation with Sapphira. This would have been a, a, a pretty interesting concept for much of the ancient world. We see that Ananias... There's a, there's a separate incident for Ananias, and then there is another one for Sapphira. That, that both men and women were held accountable for their actions. That discipleship and accountability apply to both men and women. The message is clear. Now, that would have been radical back then. But the message is clear. God desires to be a mainstay in both men and women. Both men and women are held accountable for their actions. Couples, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your fiance, your husband, your wife. You are meant to build one another up in the gospel. You are meant to be brother and sister in Christ, to honor him, to love one another well. You will be held accountable for your actions. We see here that like Barnabas, they had sold a piece of land. And like Barnabas, they had pledged the full proceeds to the community. But unlike Barnabas, they had kept back some of the money for themselves. We're not told how much. We don't know if it was 10%. We don't know if it was 50%. We don't know if it was 1%. We don't know if it was 20 bucks that they held back. But the word that is used here in the original language indicates that they embezzled or they stole the money from the sale. Now you might be asking, if the land belonged to them and the proceeds belonged to them, how could they embezzle it? How could they steal from themselves? And that's exactly what Peter says. When it was yours, was it not at your disposal? Was this not your own? Could you not have done with it what you desired to do? But he says, you have contrived this deed in your heart. The same word is used in the Old Testament in the book of Joshua for another instance here, there's a, the story of Achan. And after God does the miracle, we all, if you've been a part of church for a little while, you know there's a story of Jericho, right? So there's these walls and they march around it and the walls fall down and there's this incredible victory that's won. Very soon after it, there is a crushing defeat of the Israelites at Ai. It's literally the next thing. And what happens in between those two stories is that a man goes 
And after God had did a miracle, he commanded that they not take for themselves the sacred things. God had said, this is for me. But this man came and he, and he took it for himself. This man, Achan, took what had been set aside for God. And the consequences of that is that the Israelites suffered a terrible defeat at Ai. And it would ultimately cost Achan his life. And so here Ananias lays down the reduced portion of the proceeds from the sale. He has given something, and I'll tell you something. Many of us act like this. We, we operate on the scale of, did I or did I not do something? We never ask God, what is the full measure that you would have me to do? God, what is the full measure that you would have me to give? God, how much should I love? We see that in, in, in the Gospels as well. How many times should I forgive my brother, Peter says? Seven times? Seventy times? How much is enough? So Ananias lays this down. But it's something, but it's not what he pledged. Friend, when we give our lives to Christ, I had a friend who one time would say this, and, and it kind of annoyed me, uh, but, but now I really appreciate it. He would say, if he's not Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all. Come on, Matt. You're going you're gonna to go there? Like, you mean I got to like act so good and act so right all the time? I got to mind my P's and Q's and I got to like stand there and do exactly as I'm told? No, I'm telling you that you need to follow the Spirit of God at all times. You need to seek God in every aspect of your life. What it is that you have pledged when you gave your life to Christ, it wasn't like a, hey God, I'll give it to you on the weekends. Hey, God, I'll give it to you on the good days. Hey, God, I'll give it to you when I'm in abundance. No, God, When God says, lay down your life and you'll find life in me, it means that you put all of it down and that what you pick up, whatever that is, is so much greater than you could ever accumulate for yourself. Some of us are living stressed out, semi-rich lives when we could be living joyful lives in Christ no matter how much we have. We're so worried about what the world says. We're so worried about what our friends say. We're so worried about what our pastor says. We're so worried about what our employer says. We're so worried about what our spouse says. But we never ask the question, God, what have you said? We don't have to ask that question. Lay down your life. Pick up your cross and follow after me. And the life that we find in Christ is so much more than we could ever find in ourselves. But here Ananias, what he gave, his offering came from a divided heart. Friends, let's not be divided. Let us not have a divided heart. 
Because we remember, we look back at the very first verse, it says, Now the full, member of, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and of one soul. This is what made uh, Ananias' sin so grievous, is that he stole from the unity that God was creating in the community of the believers. Ananias had one foot in the community, but he still had one foot in the worldly possessions that he enjoyed. And Peter's words to Ananias are that he had not lied to man, but that he had lied to God. And the man falls over dead. Did he die of shock? Did he die of a heart attack? Did God strike him down? The text doesn't say specifically in that moment. But what we do know is the result of that is that fear and awe came over everybody who heard about the story. They were pretty clear in what had happened. But also, let us, let us notice that Peter did not judge Ananias. Later, he wouldn't judge Sapphira. It was his job to confront them, not to judge them. He was speaking as a leader in God's church, acting as the mouthpiece for God, and it would be to God, it would be left to God for, for the ultimate judgment to be had. It's God's job to judge. I think we would do well to heed Peter's example here. Oftentimes as Christians, we act as judge, jury, and executioner for people. We're quick to pass whatever sentence we deem necessary to those around us that make mistakes both big and small. We do this on a daily basis. We choose. We, we say, I don't know about that person. I don't know about that. And, and we make our choices. We make our judgments. And we and there are consequences for that. We, we make up this list of, of, of the gospel according to Matt. The ten Matt commandments. And if you break one of these commandments, then you deserve wrath and fury. But if you keep those commandments, then you're fine by me. The problem is, is that my command is not God's command. Now, God is changing and, 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 and growing by the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. But I'm not perfect, so my law is not perfect. And I'm not supposed to. The book of James would say that if I've come, become a law unto myself, that's dangerous. But let us be like Peter here, faithful to speak the truth. And to confront our brothers and sisters, but not to pass judgment upon them. Let us indeed love our brothers and sisters and leave the ultimate consequence to God. Now that's not to say that you should do something that's unwise. That's not to say that you should enter into an unsafe environment or continue in an unsafe relationship. That's to say that you should confront and be honest and speak the truth in love but don't judge in your heart and ostracize those that you don't necessarily understand. We see later on that there's a second confrontation, right? There's Ananias and then there's Sapphira. And once again, Peter, he, says, he asked her the question, did you sell the land for this much? And she says, oh yeah, that's what we sold it for. And then look what Peter says. How is it that you have agreed together 
to test the spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. Verse 10, and then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. It's only three hours later. Typically, deaths and burials and ceremonies were were longer processes during the the New Testament time. It would have been a multi-day event. But here in three hours, we see that Ananias has been taken away, buried, and the men who did that are already back in three hours. And Sapphira, come, and Sapphira dies, and then they are able to carry her out and do the same with her in just three hours. The result here is that because of her complicity in the sin of her husband, that they had done that together. She would join him in death. But let us not forget the, the consequences of Ananias and, Sapphira, Ananias and Sapphira's demise. Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Let's not miss the point here. As one commentator says, the church is a holy body, the realm of the spirit. By the power of this spiritual presence in its midst, the young community worked miracles, witnessed fearlessly, and was blessed with incredible growth. The Spirit was behind its unity, and its unity was the power behind its witness. Friends, we need to seek the Spirit like never before. That we might have unity. That we might see miracles done in Jesus' name. That we might witness fearlessly. And that we might be blessed with incredible growth as God allows The same commentator continues, the church can only thrive as the people of God if it lives within the total trust of all of its members. Where there there is that unity of trust, that oneness of heart and mind, the church flourishes in the power of the Spirit. Listen to this, where there is duplicity and distrust, its witness fails. The same spirit that gave the community its growth also maintained its purity. The same spirit that gave the early church its power remains zealous to maintain that power through purity. So then, church, what are we to do in light of this story? And as I said in the beginning, it would be easy to look at this the book of Acts, and especially this story, as something that is pretty unbelievable. There were many aspects that seem too foreign or too extreme to be true. We typically have uh, two offering boxes that people come up to on Sunday morning, and they, they drop their offering in the offering box. And not once have I ever really thought, man, when so-and-so drops that offering in the offering box, they're going to drop dead. It's not something I think about a lot. That would be remarkable if that were to happen. Seems unbelievable. Seems too extreme, too foreign, too far away. Let us take note. The same spirit that gave the early church the power to see great things accomplished in the name of Jesus is the same spirit that dwells in us as believers 
all these years later. Here it is. If you are a person who does not yet have a relationship with Christ, if you are outside of the Christian family and wondering what it means to be a part of it, place your faith in Jesus and turn to the source of true life. In him you will find peace and joy. And listen to this. A family that lasts forever. A family that will love you as God loves you. A family that will trust you. A family that you can trust. A family that will give. And a family that will receive. I know you're longing for it. It's one of the most Googled and asked questions and things that are thought of. And there are literally just so many resources asking the question, what what is it? What is it about community that matters The New Testament says that it is the Spirit of God that matters in the community. That as the community seeks the Spirit of God, they will enjoy unity and revival will come from that. If you're a person who has a relationship with Christ, listen to Micah 6.8. To seek and to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God, or as we say around here, that we should love God, live life together, and serve our community. And let's just see what God can do through His people.